I've always wondered about that episode. The Bible gives us so little details on so many things, and it name drops poor Eutychus. I mean, forever, his name is sketched into holy inspired scripture as the guy who fell asleep and fell out a window and died. That's pretty rough. Um, so, I mean, imagine his poor kids. Your dad's name's in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we will not name drop if you fall asleep uh, here at Cornerstone. We are safe. You're safe here. And you do not have to worry about it getting added to inspired scripture if we did. All right, so Romans chapter 3, um, verse 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. By the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would bless the, the reading of your word, the hearing of your word, the preaching of your word. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for the book of Romans. We are so thankful for the life of the Apostle Paul. We're thankful for his love for the gospel. We're thankful for his desire to share the gospel. And we are so thankful for your care and attention in explaining to us the gospel. So Father, I pray this morning that we, everyone gathered here, we would have a better understanding of the gospel from our time in your word. I pray for that. I pray, Father, that that understanding would serve our hearts well, but it would also be an opportunity for us to understand the gospel well so we can explain it well to others. And Father, we pray that as we understand the gospel more and love the gospel more, that, that we as a church family will become a gospel-sharing people. We pray for that. Uh, we ask that your Spirit would work now and take these amazing truths and write it on our hearts. Amen. So our pastor has been walking us through the book of Luke, and uh, we've seen over and over... And that we're exhorted to follow Jesus and to share the claims of Jesus with those around us. And I found it neat to see how the Lord has worked these together with our study of Romans. 
If the main application from our time in Luke, if the main application there is for us to follow Jesus and to share the gospel, then you might say the main application of Romans is for us to know and to understand this gospel that we're sharing. So Paul, he is the embodiment of an evangelist. He knows the gospel and he wants to share the gospel. The book of Romans, it's an incredible display, a demonstration of how to evangelize. It is Paul greatly desiring to share the truths of the gospel as clearly as possible. So before we jump straight down into chapter 3 verse 21, I want to quickly take us over the highlights of, of Romans so far. I said last time that I think you could picture Paul standing holding a sign with it before a Roman audience um, with the gospel on it. And he, he gets right to that in chapter 1. If you remember in chapter 1 verses 16 through 17 we read this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. So it's right at the beginning of chapter 1. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is written, The righteous shall live by faith. So I just want you to see how closely connected that is to our passage this morning. And I see in verses 16 and 17 at least four major truths. First, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, though there are those who think he should be ashamed of this gospel. Second, the gospel is the power of God to save or free or pardon condemned sinners. Third, those who are saved may be Jew or Greek, but all will be saved by faith. And lastly, while this might be good news, it is not new news. It is what God has been doing all along. So Paul spends the rest of chapter 1 after saying this, and then almost all of chapter 2 arguing that both Jews and Gentiles fall short of the requirements of God and therefore are worthy of His righteous anger, or what we call wrath over their sin. And he rounds out chapter 2 by laying down a very incredible statement, a statement that would incite outrage for the Jewish listener. I put it there on the handout, Romans 2.29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Notice that Paul actually doesn't go further than what he already said in chapter 1. Here he says that a Jew is one inwardly, and that circumcision is a matter of a heart. But, that's just another way of saying that righteousness is from God through faith. He already said it in chapter 1, verse 16. When he says that it is done by the Spirit, he is saying that it is God who brings it about. But notice again, he's already said this when he said he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of who? God for salvation. So the end of chapter 2 is a restatement of the gospel is already stated in chapter 1. In the gospel, 
is the message that God saves apart from human merit, by grace, through faith. Why make a point of this? Well, it's very important that as we travel into the forest of the book of Romans, that we don't lose sight of Paul's purpose. It's to explain, defend the gospel. Every passage throughout the book of Romans, Paul is dealing with explaining or dealing with counter-arguments about what is the gospel. It is Paul arguing back to folks, yes, the gospel is the good news that God saves out of his own pleasure and does so by the grace without outside of human accomplishments. So last time we covered the ground between the end of chapter 2 all the way through the latter part of chapter 3. And there Paul is arguing to a Jewish audience that being a Jew does not tip the scales in any way towards salvation. It's summed up nicely in chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified, that's made right in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the, the point of this is that the law does not bring salvation to law-breaking humans. Far from it, it brings condemnation. The law brings punishment. And so the open question remains, well, where is the good news? After all, the word gospel means good news. Good news is the subject of Paul's address, and yet all we've heard is a bunch of bad news. So it all turns quickly, and we saw this a little bit last time, it all turns very quickly in Romans with Romans 3.21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift, which is a double statement there. Grace is gift. So it's by his gift as a gift. So here Paul says that the saving righteousness of God has been, has been made manifest outside the law. So a, a pardon by God has been made available through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. So even though nobody has this righteousness on their own, since all have fallen short of the glory of God, God has justified them, pardoned by His grace. This means that every human, except for Jesus, stands guilty of sin, but God has decided to offer a pardon of sin as a gift. And therein is the gospel. Therein is the good news. the really good news. God saves guilty sinners who have faith in the person of Jesus. But, <laughs> Paul is well aware his, this will not suffice for his audience. Mm -mm. 
He has to give them more. Let me explain. If you nodded off at the beginning, somebody around you should nudge you right now because this is really important to, to grasp the rest of the message. Paul knows his audience understands that justice doesn't work this way. If, if you think in your mind, if I ask you to come up with one image of justice, I'm going to guess a lot of us would come up with the scales. We might even picture Lady Justice holding the scales of justice. Well, it's an apt depiction because we realize that it demands what? Equity. That's the whole idea. Justice demands equity. If a person does something wrong, you got to pay for that crime. That's what justice is. That's why we have a justice system. Well, no judge is going to be elected on a campaign with a slogan like, I will wrap up pardons like Christmas presents and hand them out to the guilty. Or, I will suspend sentences to criminals faster than you could blink an eye. Or, believe in my son and your time on death row is done. Nobody is going to vote for that guy, right? This is, well, you might argue that somebody in prison would vote for that guy, right? But this is why we don't have polling stations in prisons, right? We all know that that is not justice. We don't want judges like that. We aren't electing judges like that. Here's the kicker. Understand that unless Paul gives some further explanation, he has basically said that the God of the universe is that type of judge. For Paul has said that God, the ultimate judge, is giving, that's the gift, gift part, is giving away salvation to sinful people as a gift. And on its own, that's a major problem. Paul needs to explain how. How is it right for God to offer pardons? That's the point of the next few verses. And it is crucial, I mean crucial, to understand Christianity. If God can pardon sinners, then how is He a just God? Let me ask that one more time because I have no doubt in my mind that there are folks in here who have never posited this question and it will help you understand Christianity immensely. If God can pardon sinners, how does He remain a just God? It's so important to understand this as we share the gospel with people around us. One of the things that you have to do as we share the gospel is you have to put this problem on the radar of the person you're talking to. While Paul knew that he had to deal with the problem, most people you share the gospel with, they will not even think of this as an issue. While they will grant you that they need forgiveness from God, they will see no problem at all with God just handing them forgiveness as a gift. So we must explain that our sin is a crime and that crimes can't simply be forgotten and dismissed. Crimes demand justice and justice demands payment. And so what payment 
is acceptable to fully pardon fallen creatures for their high crimes against a perfect Creator. Look with me at verse 24. And are justified by His grace. That's pardoned. Are pardoned by His grace as a gift. So here we see the gift part. This is God handing us the pardon. And this is the moment we stop and we say, Why? Or, sorry, we say, How? How does God do that and remain good? How does He do it and remain God? Paul assumes that in between the first half of verse 24 and the latter half of verse 24 that we are asking the question, how? And here is the answer, the latter part. Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So altogether, the flow goes something like this. Paul, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are pardoned as a gift from God. Us. Assumed. Question. Huh? Wait. How? Paul responds. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he goes on and he gives us some more explanation in verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So he goes on to explain the how. He explains that God the Father put His Son Jesus to be a propitiation. He put forward Jesus to be an appeasement. That's what, that's what the word propitiation means. Well, that begs the question. Who is it who needs all this appeasing? You put forward an appeasement for someone who needs to be appeased. Well, this is where Christianity gets a little bit weird. This is where you've got to be ready to explain. The one who needs to be appeased is God. <laughs> so, I'm telling you, if you've been around Christianity, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you have never heard this, this is weird. This is really weird. Get this. God fully pardons a bunch of of rebellious creatures by putting forward His perfect Son who then appeases God for the guilt that He pardoned to the fallen creatures. Put it another way. We are saved from God by God. And just so we know the full weight of the payment, let us not lose the detail at the end of verse 25. Whom God put forward is a propitiation by His blood. And because we're in religious mode, it's easy to lose the significance of that. But think about this in normal terms. So imagine I'm at a store, and I trip and fall, and I break something at the store. Uh, and Meaning property of the store, not just my body. Um, so the store owner comes over and says, Hey, you're going to have to pay for that. I'm not happy, but I reach for my wallet. And then the store owner looks at me ominously and says, Oh no, you're going to be paying in blood. Well now, what went to be an inconvenient situation just turned very, very different, right? Paul just tosses this out there. And we need to, that difference in that story is what needs to be felt when you read that in 25. Whom he put forward as a propitiation by his 
blood. Well, that changes things. He means that the torturous display of Jesus being executed on a cross was a gruesome human portrayal of the wrath that Jesus faced from God the Father over our sin. So Paul explains that God the Father pardons sin not by forgetting about it, not by turning a blind eye to it, but turning the full fury of His wrath upon His only Son, Jesus, on the cross. That's the how. And just in case you think that we might be overplaying this how question, look at the second half of verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation for His blood, comma, to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because his, in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. So if Paul is right and all humans are lawbreakers and if he's right that no human effort's enough to appease the wrath of God for sin, then this is a predicament that is not a new predicament. <laughs> the problem predates the days of Jesus as fallen creatures predate the days of Jesus. So how is it that God could pardon anybody before Jesus? You see, that's the problem that Paul's putting on the table. And I just think, and you're going to hear me say so, this is helpful. This is not Paul trying to be theology geek. This is Paul evangelizing. This is how we help people. We help deal with questions like this. We don't dance around them in hopes that, oh, I hope you don't ask that one. What am I going to do with that? No, we say, what about this one? It's exactly what Paul's doing. So how is it that God could pardon sinful Abraham or sinful Moses or sinful David? That's exactly Paul's point. How could this be? How were they pardoned? God's name was on the line every single time He forgave guilty sinners. The blood of Jesus was necessary the moment God gave Adam and Eve clothes instead of shackles. Good example. You remember after David's sin, Nathan comes in in 2 Samuel and he confronts David. And It's an interesting poetic discussion, but there at the end, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says back to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. So when, David, when Nathan tells David, The Lord has put away your sin, the how question must be asked. How does God just put away David's sin? Paul's answer is that God was able to put away David's sin by putting it on His Son, Jesus. On David's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, Jesus. So Jesus had to die in order for God to be shown as just, even if no one else was pardoned after David. God's name was on the line as He offered forgiveness to guilty David. And this is why I can't overstate the importance of the how question. As Christian readers of the Old Testament, anytime we see forgiveness 
or hear forgiveness, we must ask, how? So when we see that a blood of a, a, a goat gets spilled all over the altar or sprinkled on the altar and the sins are forgiven, there should be this question among us of, well, how does that work? How does the blood of a goat take care of sin? Or when we hear people, God's people cry out because they're in bondage over their sin and God relents and saves them, there should be this question of, well, how does that work? How does crying out in prayer solve sin? And the answer every time is that God was looking forward to the cross of Jesus. Or to move from legal terms to accounting terms, you might even say it this way. Every Old Testament pardon was a debit waiting to be paid by the credit of Christ on the cross. But I think that raises another question. Why did Paul, Mr. Understand the Old Testament in and out Paul, why before conversion was he not asking the how question? For that matter, why didn't every reader of the Old Testament ask the how question? Well, I think that some of the Old Testament characters did ask the, the, the how question and they looked forward to the coming Messiah to bring redemption. But most of them did not ask the how question. We saw an evidence of that as Paul began chapter 3 and he's having to argue against these Jews who are not asking the, the, the how question. So why? Why was Paul before conversion not asking the how question? Why were the other Old Testament readers not asking the how question? Well, they simply didn't ask how because they saw no need for it. They simply did not see their predicament as bad as it was. While they believed that they needed God's forgiveness, it seemed this was something that could reason, they could reasonably count on given their heritage and their good deeds. I think this is so helpful in understanding Christianity. Christians have great news, but it is only fully realized when you believe the proper Christian diagnosis over human sinfulness. As Christians, we believe that everyone is fallen and that it is enough to earn us the wrath of God such that we cannot satisfy that debt on our own. Now swallow that. It's unlike, I promise you, it is unlike any other religion. One of the things to point out, if you're talking to a Muslim when sharing the gospel, is to point out that Christianity and Islam differ because Christianity offers a much more radical understanding of the problem of sin. Only Christianity treats it as an insurmountable human predicament. One that cannot be solved by human effort or behavior modification. One that cannot be corrected by internal change. But must be corrected by external, unearned grace. As we share our faith with others, we must explain this, that they may understand the full weightiness of the gospel. So after reminding his audience that God had to answer the how question over past pardoned sin, Paul returns to remind them, the audience that the death of Jesus is the only answer to present pardoned sin. Verse 26, so he's dealt with 
in His divine forbearance, He looked over this sin. Now He turns to 26 and says, It was to show, that is to declare, His righteousness. That is God's justice at the present time. In other words, you get what it's saying here? It's saying God needed to show that He's just, that, he's, that, he, that, he, that He does not just give away pardons so that He might be, the ju be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul says that Jesus was put forward in order that God might be just in pardoning sin as well as the one who made a way to pardon sin. Again, we are saved by God, from God, through faith in Jesus. Now, Paul has something. He's explained the gospel. He's explained the how. As it's been digested, he now can deal with some common implications. And he gives us a few of those. First, if the gospel is by grace through faith, then what does that mean for boasting? If it's handed to us, what is the meaning of boasting? Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? That's the question he puts forward. It's Paul just putting forward questions. It's so helpful. It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No. By the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So you're happy that you got your salvation outside of the law, but realize when it came outside of the law, so did your boasting about your law keeping go also. Boasting only makes sense in a world where pardon is earned by law keeping. But in the world of the gospel, pardon is gained by God-given faith. There is no room for boasting. So I think this is helpful as we explain the gospel to people. It's worth pointing out that we as Christians have no room for boasting about our salvation. We have no room for boasting about our morality or for anything for that matter. Many people perceive Christians as goody-two-shoes who think they have it all together. I think as we share the gospel, we should explain that by definition, Christians must admit that we don't have it all together. We're merely recipients of grace. That's one question. Second, Paul says, if the gospel is grace through faith, then it is open to all people, even Gentiles? Now we should be waiting on bated breath for this one, right? Tell us, Paul! Or is God the God of Jews only? Verse 29, is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, Gentiles also. Since God is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith or by faith. The gospel is open to all peoples. Whether they are born Jew or Gentile, man or woman, Anglo or Asian, black or white, God is the God of all. There is no privileged class of people, no group of people who are closer to God than any other. This gives us cause to pray for people across the world. From Iran to Pakistan, to North Korea, to Turkey, to India, to Japan. For people living in people groups who have never heard the gospel. 
It gives us cause to go and tell. It gives us cause to give so others may go to stretch ourselves to learn more and pray more for the entire globe because God is a God of all. And He saves all. And He saves them all the same way. By grace through faith, says Paul. Third, if the gospel is by grace through faith, then what is the purpose of law keeping? <laughs> Seems to us like He just did away with the law. So why do we even keep it? We've already heard this. You're going to hear it again. Paul doesn't tire from answering it. The answers don't get much longer though. Verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. You can see Paul responding like that. On the contrary. We uphold the law. Why do Christians follow God's commands if we're saved by Merely by God's grace, Christians follow God's commands because God's Spirit enables them to do so. They don't do it to earn God's favor. They keep God's commands because God has shown favor. Christians don't follow God's commands in order to pay back some debt. That would be absurdly impossible. They do it because God has given them life. And that life makes the ways of God finally seem good and true. So Paul has summed up the gospel for us. Actually, put on your handout uh, what I think is a very helpful summary in one of the questions in the children's catechism uh, that, that we teach. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the state of sin and misery? And then there's the answer. And any of the kids, you stop them in the hallway and they sh they'll be able to give you this answer. God, out of His good pleasure, saved His people from their sins through a Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Every part of that is so important. So, are we all left in a state of sin and misery? We should be, right? Are we all left in a state of misery? No. Why? The second part. God, see how it starts? The gospel starts with what? God, why? Why'd you do it, God? Out of His good pleasure. What did He do? He saved. That means we, we needed to be saved. He saved who? Everybody? No. He saved who? His people. What did He save them from? Their bad health? Rough times? Relationship issues, bad job, saved his people from their sins. How did he do that? How? Through. Through who? The Redeemer. Who's that? There's only one Jesus Christ. Every part is precious, it's the gospel. And as simple as it's stated, it's not always simple to explain. If you think it's always simple to explain, then explain to me the book of Romans. I remember years ago talking to someone who was not a believer. and He was honest enough to tell me he found Christianity silly. And I pressed as to why he thought it was silly. He didn't get mad and throw things at him. I just asked, well, that's interesting, why do you think it's silly? He said, I've got to be honest with you, it seems silly to me that you think I'm going to hell 
and you're going to heaven because you prayed some prayer that I didn't pray. That just seems arbitrary and silly. Um, so listen, I was honest. I mean, I knew what he's talking about. I've heard Christianity described that way. If you just pray this prayer, then you won't go to hell. If you don't want to pray, go to hell, come up here pray this prayer. I told him. I said, well, that's what Christianity is. You're right. It's arbitrary and it's silly. But that's not true. That's not what Christianity is. There's so much wrong with summing up the gospel with something like just pray this prayer. It's unhelpful in so many ways. But in one of the ways it's unhelpful is it never deals with the how question, does it? None. It never deals with how we're saved. In fact, it's actually worse. It actually makes Christianity into a works-based righteousness because the reason that one's going to hell and one's going to heaven has to do with what one person did and the other person didn't do. Namely what? Pray a prayer. It's an anti-gospel. It's not true. I went on to try to explain to him, no, 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 no. Listen, the Bible diagnoses every single one of us is completely guilty before God. We all deserve hell. I deserve it as much as you deserve it. That's it. God has every right to punish our sin. The reason I'm, I think I'm going to go to heaven is not because I deserve it in any way. It is because God has alivened in me faith. That when I hear the name of Jesus, I think of the Redeemer who paid for my sins on the cross. And it was not to my credit. It was all the way the opposite of it. Only reason that I have any hope is because God has acted on my behalf in Jesus. It's not an arbitrary prayer. It was the costly life of Jesus, His Son. There's a huge amount of weight to the how question. I'm hoping that our time in just a day, and there's going to be more of it, will help us know and love the gospel so much more. The more you know anything, the more you're willing to share about it. But let me suggest this. If you just want a way to get going, I'm going to give you a challenge. Think of a friend or a family member. Maybe they're the one that you're thinking of as in the who's your one. And you want to talk to them and you just never know how to bring it up. I'm going to suggest this. Perhaps the next time when you have a moment and you have to make the moment, it won't ever seem... There's no... I hate trying to work it in, right? Um, yeah, that just never feels right. Um, glad we're having burgers today. Speaking of appeasement, right? That just doesn't work. So take the time and just ask this question. It is a fair, natural question. Something like, how would certainly not like a judge that let guilty people go free? That just doesn't seem like a good judge to me. I got a question. How do you think it is that the God of the universe lets guilty people like me and you go free? How? What do you think? Don't. Start thinking of your next. Just listen. Listen. I'm telling you. With that question, you will quickly get to the heart of what they believe about God, about what they believe about sin, about what they believe about Jesus, and about abiding faith. Make them answer the how question. I pray that as we look further at Romans, this gospel that is the riches of everything we do, 
And don't ever let us take our mind off of it. The most incredible thing we can do as a church, the most incredible thing we can do as a church, is protect this jewel called the gospel. With all of our might, we protect it. And Romans is an awesome opportunity. It's like a microscope going around it and looking at every angle. I pray that we'll love it. Love it as much as Paul did. I hope also as we sing together, Yet Not I, we see how fitting of a Christian song this is together. Let me pray for us.